0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're
1: listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Yeah.
0: From where I'm sitting in central Alberta, it definitely feels like summertime. The fridge is full of watermelon, the nights are long and bright, and we're in the middle of a record-breaking heat wave. June was a busy month with pride celebrations, Indigenous Peoples Month, and the summer solstice for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. Before we turn the calendar page, it's time for another News Roundup episode to catch up on some of the headlines from the past month. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. Before we start our episode, We would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you're on. With June being Pride Month and Indigenous Peoples Month here in so-called Canada, we thought we would promote some two-spirit and queer Indigenous artists, authors, and educators from across Turtle Island. If you've never checked out the writing by folks like Billy Ray Belcourt, The Dancing of Brian Solomon or Aria Evans, or the music of Jeremy Dutcher. Check out our website or the show notes for this episode for more information and some links. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental headlines that you might have missed in the past month. Let's start things off with a big story from the month of June. Here's Sonic Patel to tell us about the cancellation of the contentious Keystone XL pipeline.
1: Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. On June 9th, TC Energy announced that it would be terminating the Keystone XL pipeline project. Earlier this year, construction on the pipeline was suspended after United States President Joe Biden fulfilled his campaign promise to cancel the presidential permit. As a result, TC Energy reported a loss in the most recent quarter. The decision to terminate the project comes after a 10-plus year battle with environmentalists. With the pipeline officially dead and buried, well, figuratively, anyways, let's do a post-mortem recap of the Keystone XL project. Keystone XL, which stands for Export Limited and not Extra Large, as I formerly believed, was proposed as the fourth phase of the Keystone pipeline system. The pipeline would have a terminal in Hardesty, Alberta, travel through Alberta, Saskatchewan, Montana, and South Dakota, before terminating in Steel City, Nebraska. The pipeline would transport crude oil from the Alberta oil sands, and light crude from Montana and North Dakota, added in Baker, Montana. With a pipeline diameter of 3 feet, Keystone XL was designed to move 830,000 barrels of crude oil a day. The Keystone XL pipeline was proposed in 2008 by TC Energy at the time called TransCanada. In 2010, the National Energy Board, the former name of Canada's Energy Regulatory Agency, approved the project, albeit with some conditions. By 2014, the United States House and Senate had both approved the project, but the bill was vetoed by former President Barack Obama. In 2015, former United States Secretary of State John Kerry determined that the project was not in the public interest, citing the anti-environmental image the pipeline was receiving. The statement suggested that, if the pipeline was to be approved, the United States would lose credibility in climate change negotiations. By the end of the year, the Obama administration rejected the project. In 2017, then-newly elected President Donald Trump, who campaigned on supporting Keystone XL, walked back on President Obama's decision, signing a presidential permit to allow construction. However, Keystone XL wasn't out of the woods yet. In 2019, a United States district judge vacated the new permit, as it violated the Administrative Procedure Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, and the Endangered Species Act. In 2019, President Trump issued a new permit for the pipeline, in 2020, a United States district judge again suspended the pipeline construction, after a court challenge by environmental group, the Northern Plains Resource Council. The case was eventually taken to the Supreme Court of the United States, who upheld the decision to haul construction until they could come to their final decision. While the US half was in legal limbo, construction on the Canada part of the pipeline was underway, In 2020, in Alberta, the newly elected United Conservative Party announced that Alberta would take a part ownership stake in the project and provide a loan guarantee for the project. However, in 2020, Democratic candidate Joe Biden announced he would cancel the presidential permit if he was elected, a promise he upheld on his first day in office earlier this year. Premier Kenny of Alberta initially said that the government of Alberta would seek compensation through the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, and its adjudication process, though it probably isn't a good sign that there has never been a successful case against the United States under NAFTA. At several stages of this decade-long process, the pipeline faced numerous challenges. Environmentalists opposed the project for a number of reasons— including concerns about oil spills polluting critical waters such as the Ogallala aquifer this massive subsurface reservoir provides fresh water for 2 million people and supports the agriculture industry in the midwestern united states the project was also initially proposed to cross the sandhills region a key environmental area which garnered some opposition this concern may have been especially pressing as the existing keystone pipelines have had numerous spills in the last decade. TC Energy attempted to mitigate some of these concerns by rerouting the pipeline. Other environmental issues included developing support systems for conventional and carbon-intensive energy sources, resulting in higher greenhouse gas emissions. While the State Department claimed the pipeline would not impact the rate of extraction in the oil sands, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency disagreed claiming the pipeline would expand the oil sands and, therefore, produce substantial amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. Several environmental groups sought to stop the project through legal avenues, while protests and political campaigns targeted decision-makers. Notable actions include a campaign at the White House in 2011 that led to the arrest of 1,000 people, including Canadian activist Naomi Klein. Often at the forefront of these efforts were indigenous peoples, fighting to protect land and water. Among the many groups that opposed the project were the Blackfoot Confederacy of Canada, the Great Sioux Nation, and the Ponca tribe, who signed a cross-nation declaration of opposition. However, while some environmental groups opposed the pipeline, others lamented the cancellation as the loss of a potential economic resource. So where does that leave us now? Well, Alberta is on the hook, having lost around $1.3 billion from their risk investment. The government could recoup some of this money through the sale of the materials purchased for the pipeline, although labor costs cannot be recovered. Keystone XL joins a growing pipeline graveyard, resting alongside the cancelled Northern Gateway and Energy East pipeline projects. And for anti-pipeline environmentalists in Canada— The fight continues against Enbridge's Line 3 and the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. And when you couple this decision with the recent affirmation of the federal carbon tax, the cancellation of Keystone XL is another blow to the United Conservative Party's energy platform. The termination of Keystone XL is a big deal. Not just a big loss for the government of Alberta that gambled on the project through their investment, or because it's a big win for environmental and indigenous opposers, but because it could signal to governments and investors that pipeline projects are risky investments, potentially setting a precedent for consideration of future projects. This has been Sonic Patel, covering the cancellation of Keystone XL. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, Sonic. Sticking to the subject of pipelines... Next up is this month's updates from land and water defenders from across Turtle Island, where we'll touch on protests against a proposed pipeline expansion, updates from forest defenders in Ferry Creek, updates on coal in Alberta, and more. For this month's land and water defender updates, we are starting across the United States border. Line 3 is a pipeline expansion that was proposed in 2014 by Enbridge, which would reach from Edmonton, Alberta, to Superior, Wisconsin. The original pipeline was built in 1968, and in 1991, it ruptured and spilled almost 2 million gallons of diluted bitumen. This new expansion would create a new pipeline corridor through currently undisturbed wetlands and the territory of the Anishinaabe people, reaching to the shore of Lake Superior. According to StopLine3.org, a nonprofit organization acting in resistance to the project, the construction of Line 3 would violate the treaty rights of the Anishinaabe Nations in its threatening of the wetlands and watersheds where wild rice grows, which is a centerpiece of Anishinaabe culture. If the project is completed, it will cross over 200 bodies of water, including crossing over the Mississippi River twice. Line 3 was supposed to be completed in 2017, but it has been kept at bay by grassroots organizing and legal efforts. The final approval for the pipeline was granted in November 2020, and since then, more than 200 water protectors have been arrested for their resistance to this pipeline project. As the wet season moratorium on construction ended, Construction on Line 3 was ramping up in early June. On June 7th, hundreds of activists and water protectors came together to support an Indigenous-led action in northern Minnesota. Two Line 3 work sites were taken over through this action, called the Treaty People Gathering. Further south, two pump stations were also occupied. Access roads were blocked by people and a boat that was dropped off and parked sideways on the road. In the afternoon, Riot police, made up of county sheriffs and local police officers, arrived, facing off with water protectors and eventually taking over the pump station, where hundreds of arrests were made. County sheriffs that respond to Line 3 protests in Minnesota are reimbursed by an escrow account, funded by Enbridge, and administered by state officials. I had to look up what an escrow account was and apparently, it's a contractual agreement where a third party controls payments between two transacting parties. Water protectors at the protests on June 7th called this out, asking why a multinational corporation like Enbridge is funding the police in northern Minnesota. Unicorn Riot, a nonprofit independent media organization, was there to cover the treaty people gathering and live streamed the action for several hours. For the link to Unicorn Riot's coverage or more information about Line 3 and the actions of resistance taking place in Minnesota, check out the links in our episode notes. Next, we will move northward into British Columbia. The actions of resistance against old-growth logging at Ferry Creek continue, with over 300 arrests made to date. On June 9th, The British Columbia government approved a request from a group of First Nations to defer old-growth logging in their territories on southern Vancouver Island for two years. This area includes 884 hectares of forest in the Ferry Creek watershed and over 1,000 hectares of old-growth in the central Walbran Valley. However, Blockades at Ferry Creek continue to be occupied by activists and forest defenders as they call for old-growth logging to be stopped now and forever. On June 24th, the RCMP arrested another 20 people on one of the Forest Service roads near Port Renfrew. On June 25th, the blockades were taken directly to the Teal Jones Equipment Yard, where forest defenders chained themselves to the gate. 18 additional arrests took place on June 25th. A rally is planned for July 3rd at 1pm in so-called Victoria, British Columbia to support Indigenous forest defenders and their allies and to demand that old-growth logging be stopped. The fight against old-growth logging is still raging on in coastal British Columbia. For links to social media accounts providing updates, check out the show notes for this episode. Now, moving into Alberta, on June 17th, a joint review panel established by the Federal Minister of Environment and Climate Change and the Alberta Energy Regulator deemed the Grassy Mountain coal mine in southern Alberta quote, not in the public interest, end quote, and recommended that the federal government reject it. However, other coal projects continue to push forward. Riversdale Resources, the Australian company behind the proposed Grassy Mountain project, says that it is, quote, reviewing its options, end quote. Additionally, two other companies with coal leases in the same area, Montem and Atram, say that they plan to continue pushing their proposed coal projects forward. This includes the Tent Mountain Project, where Montem plans to engage in open pit mining, and the Elan Hard Coking Project, planned by Atram, which has extensive coal leases in the area north of Grassy Mountain. On June 25th, the Kainai Nation, or Blood Tribe, released a statement re-emphasizing their opposition to coal projects in the Crowsnest Pass and Elk Valley. Back in February of this year, Kainai Nation's Band Council made a formal decision to oppose any further coal development projects in this area, and Siksika Nation made a similar response in solidarity. Groups like the Nitsitsupi Water Protectors, are urging the Minister of Environment and Climate Change to designate some of these other proposed projects, like Tint Mountain, for federal review. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're rounding up the environmental news headlines you might have missed this month. So far, we've covered the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline as well as updates from land and water defenders in Minnesota, British Columbia, and Alberta. Next up, we've got some headlines about food and beverage companies looking to cater to the environmentally conscious consumer. Here's Sarah Chitzas giving us the lowdown on a hard iced tea that claims to be an eco-friendly choice for your summer patio sipping.
2: On June 11th, 2021, The Daily Hive released an article about a new Canadian hard iced tea company titled, Canada's New Hard Tea is Making an Eco-Friendly Impact on the World. In this article, The Daily Hive presents Freed Earth Hard Tea as being eco-friendly, relatively healthy, and tasty. It's important to note that The Daily Hive article about Freed Earth was what is called branded content, which means that it is an article that is sponsored advertising. In other words, companies like Freed Earth Hard Tea may pay the Daily Hive to write and publish an article like the one we're discussing here as a form of advertising. I haven't tried Freed Earth's Hard Tea yet, so I can't speak to the taste, but I was able to take a deeper look at the sustainability of their products. I did reach out to Freed Earth to get some clarification on their products and sustainability, but was not able to get answers to my questions in time for this episode. So, All of the information in this segment is based on publicly available information found online. Earth makes three claims of eco-friendliness according to their website. First, they use sustainably sourced brewed tea. Second, that they use aluminum cans that are infinitely recyclable. And finally, that their cardboard packaging is certified by the Sustainable Forestry Initiative Program. I was unable to find any further information about how the brewed tea used by freed earth is sustainable. Growing tea may be unsustainable in a few ways. For example, it often involves monocropping processes, which can be really damaging to soil health. Growing tea also requires large quantities of water and can involve the use of pesticides that may negatively impact biodiversity. That being said, it is unclear in what ways the tea that freed earth uses is sustainable. The second claim of Freed Earth, that they use aluminum cans that are infinitely recyclable, is another interesting one. Aluminum is a material that is inherently infinitely recyclable, meaning that aluminum can be recycled an infinite number of times, unlike materials like plastic that are limited in the number of times they can be recycled because they break down. When looking at aluminum as a sustainable material, it's important to consider whether the aluminum being used is virgin, in other words, if it's new, or if it has been previously recycled. From their website, it's unclear if Freed Earth's aluminum cans are made from recycled aluminum. When looking at the sustainability of materials that are used in packaged goods, it is also important to consider the capacity for consumers to recycle those materials once they're done with them. Aluminum can recycling is quite widely available in Canada, making recycling cans relatively accessible for Canadian consumers. Freed Earth's third claim that I've looked into is that the cardboard they use for packaging is certified by the Sustainable Forestry Initiative program. The Sustainable Forestry Initiative is an independent nonprofit organization in the US and Canada that focuses on sustainable forest management. The Sustainable Forestry Initiative certification is an eco-label. Ecolabels are used to identify products and/or producers that meet a certain criteria of sustainability or ethical standards for consumers when they are purchasing items. Although ecolabels may be helpful for consumers who are trying to purchase the most ethical or sustainable products, ecolabels are often critiqued for a few reasons. For example, producers typically have to pay the certifying organizations to get these eco-labels on their goods. Another example of a critique is that eco-labels are maintained by audits of producers to make sure that they are meeting the ethical standards set out. But because eco-labels are so widespread, it can be really difficult for organizations like the Sustainable Forestry Initiative to be certain that the producers are meeting all of the standards they set out in their eco-labels. That being said, it is great that the cardboard Freed Earth uses in their packaging is certified by the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, but this doesn't necessarily guarantee that the production of the cardboard was 100% sustainably done. All in all, Freed Earth hard tea certainly doesn't seem to be any less sustainable than other hard tea beverages in Canada. However, it is unclear just how sustainable they actually are. While my research on the eco-friendliness of Freed Earth Hard Tea is inconclusive, this story may serve as a reminder to us all to be cautious about accepting the news and media we read or listen to without doing our own research on it. In particular, we can pay extra attention to branded content stories, which are a form of paid advertising for companies. Thanks,
0: Sarah. For our last headline, Here's Elizabeth Dowdell reporting on a frozen French fry giant's pledge to support regenerative agriculture by 2030.
3: McCain Foods made headlines earlier this month when they announced that, by the year 2030, 100% of the potatoes they buy will be sourced from farms practicing regenerative agriculture. Critics were quick to point to the many large food and beverage companies that have made and failed to keep environmental promises, like the Retail Council of Canada backing out on cage-free eggs, or Starbucks failing to reach targets for reusable cup use. What might be different, and we'll have to keep an eye to find out, is the hands-on approach McCain is taking to ensure regenerative agriculture works, not just for the planet, but for their potato growers too. To follow through on their environmental promise, McCain has started a Farms of the Future initiative. Each one of these McCain owned and commercially operated farms will be making the switch to a fully regenerative agricultural style and will be situated in three different growing regions. The purpose of these Farms of the Future is to pilot new technologies, machineries, and operational practices to ensure local suppliers are also able to make the switch to regenerative at scale and in an economically feasible manner. The first Farms of the Future farm launched this year and is situated in Florenceville, New Brunswick, where the McCain Company started in 1957. To give you a sense of scale in terms of what this news means for the planet, you should know that McCain has been called the world's largest manufacturer of frozen potato products and globally sources from 149,733 hectares of land. If you're not a farmer, that's about 1,500 square kilometres or approximately 300,000 football fields. Now, I'm not sure if that's an NFL or CFL football field, but I still find it to be a very impressive number of football fields full of potatoes. Now, let's remain cynical for a second. What is it going to mean for the planet and McCain's sustainability if they convert all of this land from conventional or chemical farming to regenerative farming practices? And this is a good question. According to the Climate Reality Project, regenerative agriculture is a system of farming principles and practices that seek to rehabilitate and enhance the entire ecosystem of the farm by placing a heavy premium on soil health while also paying attention to water management, fertilizer use, and other things. Generally, regenerative agriculture is understood to be a more sustainable method of farming that returns and builds up resources in the soil rather than depleting them. Practices might include conservation tillage, which is like low or no till farming, uh, higher on farm plant diversity, rotational and cover cropping systems, and less physical disturbance, whether that be applications of chemical or biological agents or whatever. All these practices can add up to healthier soil with better microbiodiversity, better soil structure, water retention, more nutrients, higher yields, and importantly, more opportunity for happy and healthy plants to stabilize and store carbon in the soil. Given that agriculture, along with forestry and other land uses, are responsible for about 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions, adopting regenerative farming practices and principles seems like a very good idea. However, while the benefits of regenerative agriculture are fairly well established, the term itself is as open to interpretation as modern art. Unlike organic, there are no certification processes or oversight bodies to regulate what happens on a regenerative farm or who puts the words regenerative on their product label. So for McCain to succeed in this very bold and ambitious promise, not only do they need to overhaul their agricultural systems, but their sustainability reporting needs to be transparent and accountable to ensure they're doing what they've said they will. Personally, I'm a big fan of healthy soil, frozen french fries, and a livable climate future. So in my books, this is a pretty good news story.
0: Thanks Elizabeth. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard check out our website terrainforma.ca for past episodes or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.